Let's take this a little deeper to help us understand the dynamics of whiteness and evangelicalism in relation to black Americans. You wrote, dreadfully, white American evangelicals tend to flout any data that contradicts their ostensibly theological convictions about continuing problems of race and how to resolve them. How is a sense of identity, selfhood, and the evangelical theological worldview reshape the white view of facts? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout-out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Dr. Jacob Cook. He is the Teaching Scholar Postdoctoral Fellow at Wake Forest Divinity School. He has a new book, Worldview Theory, Whiteness and the Future of Evangelical Faith. He also contributes to Baptist News Global. Jacob, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Um, before we were recording, we uh, I'm going to observe that we both reached that age where we're talking about the weather and the leaves changing <laughs> as we record this in early November. Um, I guess we've reached that point in our lives. I, you know, I, I am very reluctant to um, acknowledge the aging process has any effect <laughs> on me. Um, but I will say, yeah, the, the grayer my beard gets, the more I think about the the turning of the seasons. I think for me, um, you know, I, I'm starting to get to that point where I'm like realizing I'm at my parents' age uh, where they were at certain points, like in my younger life, and it, it just doesn't seem the same. Um, <laughs> I refuse to believe it's the same. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I belong to the resistance. So there are many <laughs> folks even here at Wake Div, you know, there are students who are in their 20s who are prematurely like consigning themselves to the fate of agedness. And I'm thinking, no, we can't do this to ourselves. We're forever <laughs> young. <laughs> yeah. Um, for those that aren't familiar uh, with your work, obviously at the end of this, they're going to be like, well, where do I need to follow this guy? But what would you want people to know uh, about you? Well, there are, there are a lot of things to me. Um, the the book title in itself, I think, is, is enough to um, scare some people away from even wanting to see what's going on out there um there were definitely a few folks who uh, read the title and said they were lost uh, already but the work that i'm doing here at wake div actually is centered on uh, how congregations can thrive uh, particularly as good partners uh, with other folks in their neighborhoods uh, which is something i think a lot of folks in who are members of churches who worry about the future of the church think about um, so I'm working here under a Lilly uh, Endowment Thriving Congregations Grant, and the work that we're doing, at least over the last few years, a uh, year and a half or so, has been um, researching what works well in congregations that have been able to make um, collaborative partnerships with folks in their neighborhood and actually make progress on some of the most challenging things um, facing um, facing their neighbors. Um, so I feel like that is the thing that I'm really interested in. How do we help churches um, understand their story, understand their neighborhood story, and, and do good work together? 
Yeah. But I know you're currently leading a research program too, centered on moral formation. Um, more specifically, you're examining what does moral formation look like for churches and the people to thrive as agents of justice in their local communities. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the research piece of that has been uh, really a lot of fun. We've included a lot of uh, Wake Div grad students in the work, and they've been out in internship placements and doing uh, field interviews and any number of things, kinds of conversations where they're really asking, what have we been doing here? Um, they're learning the skills of local history and um, ethnographic research, meaning studying the local culture of a church and asking, how have we connected with our neighbors and what does it look like when we're at our best doing that? So that really we can ask, we, we may all have language for justice, compassion, reconciliation work that we would like to be doing. It may be part of our identity and mission. But the question is, where do we, where do we take that up? Uh, where do individual members learn about that, become passionate about those things? and actually find touchstones in the in the world of real human beings uh, where they can make a difference. So that's the kind of thing that uh, we've had students researching in the world out there to ask, really, not just theoretically, what would be the best possible arrangement, but what's actually working? And I think there are some ideas uh, starting to come to the surface. So the next phase of our project is to take what we've been learning and turn that into kind of a, a curriculum that we could invite lay leaders and churches into to ask those questions and take up some of those practices within their own communities. Your mentor, David Gushy, is a friend of the podcast. Um, when we had him on last, I, I posed the ethical quandary uh, to him. He's written the latest academic survey of, of Christian ethics, and yet has a smolderingly handsome man on the front cover with a power watch. Um, you know, I posed the question to him and I'll pose it also to you. Is that not an invitation into immoral thinking to invite people into ethics, but then have that as the front cover? I will say, uh, <laughs> and I may, may catch some heat from him for this, but when I saw the cover, I did see that. And I thought, my first thought was, this is the Forrest Gump cover. <laughs> sitting on the park bench <laughs> but this is the role of mentees we have to keep our mentors humble so yeah he's yeah. heard me say that out loud uh but no one else in the world has you you heard it here first <laughs> well according to according to david it was the publisher's idea right this was his kind of <laughs> his uh masterpiece his his gift to uh you know his all his work and christian ethics to the world and so why not have him on the front cover so it is an invitation, uh, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Well, you chose an alternative cover for your book, so we'll get to that now, which is yeah, right. uh, Worldview Theory, Whiteness, and the Future of Evangelical Faith. Um, you wrote, among other things, whiteness can be understood through a culinary metaphor as kind of a blandness, a basicness that is at home with the dopamine releasing fats and sugars our body craves. Whiteness means involvement in, in ubiquitous and transparent norms of reality. Before we get to uh, really defining whiteness as you're trying to frame it here, let, let's back up to your choice of, of doctoral studies. What, what was it about this that, that drew you to, to want to do more research and writing on it? Oh, yeah, fantastic question. Uh, to be honest, it, this whole project uh, and the framework for it and the question of identity and all of that really started back at McAfee before I entered doctoral studies. I began, began to um, find a, a deep interest in this question of especially how complex our identity formation is as individuals. We have this tendency to introduce ourselves in uh, just a few terms. We want to identify what we think of as the most important features of our identity. For instance, we may lead with our faith commitment. I'm a Christian or I'm a Baptist. It may have something to do with our family position and role. Um, I would at least like to think so, right? I'm married to Abigail and um, have these three beautiful children, right? These are important features of my identity, but the things that I lead with are relatively few in number. But when we dig below the surface, uh, we find that there are so many things that influence our way of seeing and thinking about the world that 
can't be easily summarized in just those few terms. Um, the the long path that uh, has led me from birth to here has brought me in, uh, put me in front of a lot of people who have had a formative influence. I have some loyalty to many of those folks. Um, I have a history with other folks that makes me think, oh man, maybe the way that their way, maybe their way of thinking about the world is not how to go. Um, I've seen the way it's, the fruit that it's born in their lives. Uh, and so there's that kind of thing. I have unique personality traits uh, that also color the way that I see a situation, um, the way that I maybe think critically about even my own work um, is different from the, the next person. So there are these, there are many things. And then add to that the complications that we all see right now, this is early November, we're about to have midterm elections. Think about political uh, identifications and sense of citizenship or belonging and what specific church tradition and why. All of those things have some shaping influence on who we are, how we identify in the world, certainly how we think about and see the world. So that was sort of what be, uh, started me on the path of asking what's going on when we identify as Christian per se. So, uh, you know, going back to the quote from earlier, help us understand what you mean by whiteness. Yeah. So that was a that, that's one of the best quotes to pull out, I think, in in beginning to think about um, the question of how does whiteness affect really our posture in the world, or how can it? Right. Um, it's not everybody that takes up a posture of whiteness in the world. It's not referring uh, necessarily to some uh, static racial category. The way that I'm understanding whiteness is really more like along the lines of, you know, the, the kind of blandness, we're talking about gravy, <laughs> or we're talking about white noise, you know, that's meant to be kind of the kind of static that could help put us to sleep or lull us to sleep. Um, and the, the idea is if we are, when and if we're trained up to think about the world within a community that's pretty much the same as us, homogenous uh, through and through, maybe some variation, maybe some, uh, we, we still have out some battles and conversation with each other because it's fun. Um, when we're mostly around people like us, we can begin to think that our way of seeing the world is just normal, normative. It's common sense. We don't have to think about whether or not uh, the way I'm interpreting this political problem or this ethical situation is the right one, uh, really until we come up against people who believe things that are different from us. And the, the question of whiteness uh, really is, has a longer historical uh, rooting. So, you know, it, it's one thing to say that about somebody now uh, but when we think about those who have been most um, most capable of thinking of their perspective on the world as just the right slash normal perspective over the course of history, uh, particularly modern history, since the age of discovery, the so-called age of discovery or the age of colonialization, um, the folks who have had the best chance of just saying, I know what's right. My perspective connects with reality itself. I'm just speaking rationally and thinking rationally about how we order the world well according to God's will. It's primarily been folks who have had lighter skin. Um, you think about the seafaring folks who took off from Europe and encounter these people who live radically different from themselves and look different from themselves. And in a moment, right, um, the, the perception is these things are somehow connected, that the, the virtues we have by way of our Christian civilization, we carry them on our backs and somehow um, that's attached to the visual, the optic of race, um, which is constructed in that same period. So when I think about that piece, right, that's connecting with a number of scholars who have made claims along these lines and have drawn out the history for us in ways that help us grasp it, right? Um, most notably for me is Willie Jennings' book, uh, The Christian Imagination. Um, but there are others who have helped make these connections as well. 
let's talk about selfhood. You wrote questions about the prototypical self-concept functions in our lives, even as our minds are comprised by many various and sometimes conflicted strands of self-definition, lead us to look at uh, experiential theories of our of ourselves. Take us a little deeper there. Yeah, I think that, so the, the other big concept in the book, right? Um, so I've, whiteness is here on one side, and it has to do with this kind of self-normativity meaning whatever it is that I'm thinking about the world is what's normative. And I can think of myself as not necessarily being all that influenced by anything. I'm just being rational. Well, the other big term is the, the notion of worldview, which has, um, has its origin in the realm of philosophy, um, particularly back at the kind of beginning of the um, modern turn in philosophy. But it made its way into the English language, um, especially in the era around World War II, and people were beginning to see these kind of, uh, or beginning to be worried about this kind of, um, the big capitalized ideologies on the march in Europe, right? Fascism and communism and what felt like very different ways of seeing the world and uh, living life, different lifestyles. and. So the question became on this side of the water, right? What, what is it that's different about us? Uh, what is our unifying world picture? And for some, they, um, the most obvious answer was, well, you know, we're a nation that has this um, kind of radical Protestant Christian founding and uh, tied into that are our love for democracy and a certain kind of capitalism. And so like it's this, this is what the biblical or Christian worldview is. So that's, that's the short lead up to what is worldview. And then when you think about what it means for an individual person to have a worldview, that's where your question starts. What does it look like when you open up the, uh, if you could open up and look inside the mind of a person, is there something as neat and tidy as a, a well put together worldview? And where does it come from? Um, Contemporary psychology will, will uh, show us a, a kind of different perspective based on how a worldview is put together over time. So one, one way of talking about this is to say that a primary job of folks during their adolescence, as we move through high school age and into college, is to, they say, consolidate a worldview, meaning you're, you're solidifying the place of the different pieces in how you see and interpret the world, your political perspective, your religious perspective, your understanding of what's important, your values, these things you're kind of putting together into a picture that to you is coherent. Uh, but the reality is, right, if we are these complex people that we're, uh, that we have multiple influences and people speaking into our lives out of different forms of reason, out of different communities that see things differently, we really are consolidating a worldview, meaning putting together pieces that may not fit. And until we bump up against other folks who see things differently and hear, hear the way that they're saying things, we may think this really is a well put together orderly worldview and continue operating the world as though that's true while starting any number of fires and not realizing it. So, in the book, one of the things that I, I show is uh, I take an early example of worldview thinking, um, who's outside of the American context, uh, a Dutch theologian uh, living at the turn of the, um, the 20th century, becomes prime minister, has a, a lot of authority, a lot of power in his world. But when he's putting together, consolidating his Christian worldview, there are some key pieces of that worldview that he sees as just part of the biblical story that we would take issue with. For instance, when he imagines uh, God's command in Genesis 1 to fill the earth and subdue it, he thinks there's a direct connection between that and the project of colonialism. That's what it means to go out and fill the world. We need more room and more space to have more projects and to try more ways of doing life together so that we can find those patterns that God would have us live into in more places. The challenge is he also 
was a subscriber to the, the uh, racist uh, social hierarchies of the time. So think about a, a Dutch theologian become prime minister in the, the years leading up to what became the apartheid regime in South Africa, where there, there were a number of Dutch colonies. His thinking, uh, this theologian's thinking allowed for, supported <laughs> the foundations of these folks who set up this regime of separateness in South Africa. And that for him, this th theologian was just part of the Christian worldview, unquestioned. And so the risk, right, is always that we just take, if we think of ourselves as connected with God, think of, our, of ourselves as basically pious and sanctified in our imaginations, then we can imagine all of our thoughts are just part of the biblical worldview. There's no reason to question them. <laughs> uh, even if we're aware maybe that we are somehow still prone to sin, to wandering, um, we may not be aware of the deepest, most troubling thoughts that are fixed in our worldview. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. You want to create a strong Christian family that will uphold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly, compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters of Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning. Sounds different? It's by design. Join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs. To learn more, visit chministries.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. It's fascinating for me to hear you talk about um, the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. I, I was there uh, in September and um, we were working with the Desmond Tutu Foundation and among uh, other local faith leaders and just processing uh, that experience uh, for the church to really match its identity with this um, just inhumane governmental uh, practices and how it just became commonplace um, for their sense of whiteness to justify this sense of, of subjugation and, and just un unbelievable ways. I mean, and I think the thing for me, you know, being a person who's raised in the American South and uh, seeing the um, the continued echoes of uh, Jim Crow laws within mm -hmm. the South, to to also come to terms with the fact that apartheid didn't end until 1990, and you think about how recent that was, um, and and yet even within the United States, we think we're past the issue of of racism and systemic racism and racial divide, and yet it's still very present in our communities um, in so many different ways. So I, I wonder if you can take us a little deeper. You, you argue in the book that the history of the evangelical worldview and whiteness are, are intertwined. Help us understand what you mean by that. Yeah, uh, well, that's a, I think you're, the way you're leading that in is absolutely right. The, it's 
seems easier maybe from this side of the water to to look at the situation of apartheid and see how obviously wrong that is um, here in 2022 um, and still not quite understand how rooting out the most obvious parts of the problem don't necessarily take uh, help us dismantle the uh, the kind of thought frameworks that allow for these um, divisions to continue. So in our own history here in the United States, and I'm, I'm going to stay pretty recent, right? Thinking, um, again, let's go back to kind of um, World War II era when the National Association of Evangelicals is, is founded. Um, that's 1942. 1943 and uh, Fuller Seminary, where I did my uh, doctoral studies, was founded in 47. And the folks who are a part of this movement at the time are interested in, in first of all, um, trying to find a way of unifying those who had, who had at the time identify as fundamentalists theologically in a social worldview something that would have political impact, ramifications. Um, you know, fundamentalists at the time and still now, right, uh, in their own ways, have often splintered over the, the smallest of theological squabbles. And I think these folks at the time, at least in the rhetoric, the way that they were talking, um, folks like Harold Ockengay, who's one of the other characters I study really deeply um, in the book, they thought somewhat genuinely that it would be easier to agree on the political realities, uh, what we hope to accomplish in the world, this conservative political cause, than it would be on the theological things. And so the argument was, let's, we can continue to have out those battles, but let's band together under this broadly biblical worldview so that we might um, make a difference in our culture. And so first and foremost, the, this worldview, while it was named the biblical worldview, was understood to have these, this kind of social importance and have social content, uh, moral content. So these folks who happened to be gathered around these tables, right, the, the, those who wanted to be there for this kind of conversation showed up and they, they looked the same, right? It was, it, they were all white men of a certain class with uh, a certain political persuasion. And they, they, because they were the ones having these conversations about what the biblical worldview is, could just assume that what they held in common, these, these the political planks, uh, the party planks, right, would were the natural outcroppings of Bible-believing faith. And so, you know, fast forward, not too far into the future, and you see these same folks are, um, you know, really skeptical about what's going on in the civil rights movement, um, concerned about the, the kind of uh, rhetoric and the optics that are revolutionary, um, are interested in slowing the pace of integration. You know, this needs to be a voluntary thing. We don't need government, uh, you know, the, gov the federal government forcing our hand on anything. Um, you know, the, it, it's what happens is a this kind of obviously white, uh, and it, for that time, that was the kind of conservative white case, right? Um, this was being enfolded into the biblical worldview, such that it was it would be really challenging to imagine anybody who wasn't white looking at the worldview they were putting out and saying, "Yes, that's the biblical perspective. Let me jump into that cause with y'all and make um, make society what you're saying it should be." Um, so there, the the notion of whiteness takes on a, a specifically racial cast, for sure. Let's take this a little deeper to help us understand the dynamics of whiteness and evangelicalism in relation to Black Americans. You wrote, dreadfully, white American evangelicals tend to flout any data that contradicts their ostensibly theological convictions about continuing problems of race and how to resolve them. How has a sense of identity, selfhood, and the evangelical theological worldview reshaped the white view of facts? Yeah. 
So another piece of American evangelicalism uh, from the start has been this a kind of hyper individualism, uh, a focus on uh, sort of getting the right ideas into the heads of individuals. And then, you know, the, the idea is if if we can teach people all the right things to think, then at very least, uh, we've done the first part of the sanctif sanctification work, right? Or we've done, a, done our part to contribute to it. We've enlightened folks. And then the ongoing work of becoming a, a Christian means you're trying to live out the worldview that you've taken up. And that's pretty much an individual job. Uh, we, we can do it in communities together. We can encourage one another uh, to do the things we all know are right, whatever we hold to be the common, uh, common sense or the common ethic. Uh, but it's really an individual thing. And that also means then when we imagine solutions to problems like racism, um, the, the typical white evangelical is not thinking that there is any, there could possibly be any systemic um, or institutional character to those things. It's really just individuals behaving badly when um, the matters of race um, are becoming problematic. Um, and so that is in itself a fixture of the problem. So when we look at, uh, when we're asking questions then about like you know, um, the one, one set of data from the book, but this is stuff that the folks at public, the public research, uh, religion research institute are doing often, right? We ask questions about um, all of the um, violence that we've seen happening in especially uh, African-American communities, police violence, right? And you say, is there, are these isolated incidents or are these, um, you know, is there a system? Can you see a, um, a pattern here that would suggest maybe there's a systemic problem? White evangelicals are the most likely to say, no, these are just all isolated incidents, bad apples, right? Whereas the folks who are most burdened by these problems say, this really seems like a pattern to us. Uh, it feels like the system is bent against us. And when you have a perspective that sees all sin as individual, can't imagine the possibility of, of um, you know, big picture problems being more than the sum of their parts, um, then you, you're less willing to see that kind of thing. Um, there are also, I mean, other pieces of the kind of social um, racialization dynamic, right, that come out in the book also have to do with just how, how it is that churches, uh, we can imagine churches contributing to the solutions to racism. So, you know, the, again, the typical white evangelical isn't going to say there's no such thing as racism in the world now. Uh, but they will say these are isolated incidents and the best way to solve the problem is in um, you know in personal relationships we fix the we fix these things by um, helping people heal spiritually and you put people in relationships with other people and through those relationships we discover what our problems are and uh, begin to weed them out and um, the challenge is again because so much of how we see the world is socialized we pick it up um, just by swimming around in the same water or with, with people who think like us. Um, that in any given church, you may think the, the best way to, um, to, to heal a, a church community is to uh, bring in more diverse people into the church community, right? So that we're, um, we're actually visually representing the kingdom of God. Uh, more nearly. What happens is that the thoughts themselves, the worldview, isn't changing. And when you're inviting people in, you may get folks to come and sit with you for a while who look different from you. But people will self-select to stay based on whether or not they're, they're gelling with the message and the style of the church, which has already, in many cases, uh, been established as a white institutional culture uh, with all the you know political markers and uh, perspectives that come with that the individualism and um, and the like so the challenge is 
the cultural change doesn't really happen, but visually things can begin to look a bit more diverse. So the one beef I have with us moderates and progressive Christians, especially those that consider themselves to be post-evangelical, is that we forget we were part of this system, part of this <laughs> worldview, uh, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, and while we not might not be in this camp anymore, um, it has an impact on our sense of whiteness and our identity and our selfhood. Why is it important for us to come to terms with our present disassociation with this version of whiteness and and why that sense of whiteness still brought us to where we are today in my mind being able to name or claim whiteness specifically as a term is less important at, at the end of the day i my concern is theological i'm i'm concerned about sort of how the posture we take up in the world, how we position ourselves toward what we think we know, toward other people. And so at the end of the day, what, I, what I'm trying to say about whiteness and what would be relevant then for those of us who would really like to think that we're beyond uh, those problems is that we can, we can lose or uh, leave behind many of the ideas but hold on to the form, the way of thinking that is whiteness or that is worldviewing. And what's troubling about that is um, the way we think that we can grasp everything that's most relevant about the whole world, the most important things, including our place within that world, and boil it down to sort of a principled structure of thoughts about how things ought to be ordered. And then we think of ourselves and we interact with others as if that is the whole thing. And we risk not seeing people as actual persons <laughs> who, whose lives are not so neat and tidy, whose situations require more adaptability. And at the same time, we, with these uh, ways of thinking that that we find so compelling in and of ourselves, we risk turning in on ourselves. Uh, what, so the, the theologian that I referred to often throughout the book, uh, who's kind of uh, my primary theological light, you might say, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And when he describes what the fundamental human problem is, the problem uh, that begins in, in the Garden of Eden, it's that human beings, um, our, we curve in on ourselves, in our hearts. We're meant for connection with others. When, when we're set in the world, we're set in the world as relational creatures, meant to learn everything we need to know while walking together in relationship with God. And we, when we become so um, over-impressed with our ideas about the world, we risk displacing the relational fabric uh, and replacing it with this principled structure that we could love and serve without ever really needing to acknowledge or relate to a living God or a living person as such. We can just go about the work of ordering the world according to our principles um, and not really have to look anybody in the eye, which is especially problematic when some of the ways that we think we ought to order the world because we know We've discerned what God's will is. When those ways of ordering the world affect others negatively, you don't, we don't have to look people in the eye. We instead say, this is uh, God's will as we've understood it. And while we understand that there may be some pain or, or trouble that comes out of this, it's not us, right? It's God's will. And we can kind of gesture off in the direction of, the uh, the biblical worldview as really the bad guy here. I wonder for for you, um, you know, how did this process work? Obviously, you know, you didn't grow up with the convictions you have today as it connects to your personal faith journey and academic studies. You know, so from a personal side, what was that journey like coming to terms with this worldview and and as 
you know, for lack of better terms, letting it be reshaped into something completely different. I I think that, in, you know, in the in the personal sense, the journey to begin understanding sort of difference, otherness, um, people who are very different from me, um, is rooted in growing up in a place that was very homogenous. Um, you know, I come from a small uh, community in Kansas that is not very diverse racially. Um, and I had a, at my undergraduate experience in a school that at the time was not particularly diverse. Um, and so when we had conversations about theology, you know, there, there were the typical like um, Calvinist versus Methodist conversations, right? But that was like kind of the extent of the complexity. Um, and so when I um, moved on to do graduate studies, I found myself in a community of folks that was much different from me uh, in a million different ways and found my eyes open to the question of difference in, in a live, lived reality. <laughs> what, uh, what has formed me to be this kind of person? And how could, you know, how could I possibly think that I understood the whole world so clearly when I've never even heard some of these perspectives before? Um, so personally, that's sort of the beginning of the journey. Uh, and then over time, I especially grew concerned about the, the sense of the smug sense of having it all together and having being right about everything uh, and the kind of obviousness of the biblical worldview. When in a setting, um, I, I found myself as the odd one out so many times. Um, you know, as somebody who's been formed in, uh, in Baptist convictions, uh, I think of myself as a little B Baptist uh, in the style of Jim McClendon. Uh, and part of that for me is I've reached back to and, and held on to a number of convictions that come out of the radical Reformation tradition, the Anabaptist Mennonite folks, um, which has a lot of different pieces to it, but it means, you know, centering my way of understanding theology and ethics on the person of Jesus first and foremost, and uh, taking seriously the call to be um, folks who make peace in the world and, and not uh, practicing violent or coercive methods of engaging others, uh, of trying to get others on board with my way of thinking about ethics and that kind of thing. And even that much, right, the, the question of, uh, a Christian commitment to nonviolence, to pacifism when it comes to war and that kind of thing, uh, bumps smack up against folks, uh, many folks who would see themselves as holding the biblical worldview. And so then personally, I began to wonder, why is it that, that um, you know, folks can defend their perspective as if it is the one biblical perspective when, you know, I think that I have a good biblical uh, argument for for being committed to nonviolence, and would see that as uh, maybe central to a biblical worldview, whereas other folks don't. And so, when I when I uh, kind of felt the the gears uh, turning against me, uh, when when I was being put into the grinder, so to speak, because of my convictions uh, that I thought of as biblical, I I thought, gosh, it is so easy to think of whatever it is that you've got going on inside your mind as the thing that is the truest, that is the biblical perspective and not allow for the complexity that's going on within. And so while we may say things in this kind of um, generalized way, we wanna to gesture towards the biblical worldview, the reality is as soon as we start getting down to some of even the most basic details of what that could mean, once we get down past, you know, there is a, a good God who created the world. Uh, Jesus is his son and does this particular kind of work. Right? Like once we get past those few basic theological things, and maybe we can't even do that uh, because we're going to have trouble defining what is Jesus' work, for instance, or something like that. Get down past that much. And we're going to find a lot of variety within whatever may be a biblical worldview. Um, and experientially for me, that also required an account. Why is it then that we talk like this? Why is it then that we appeal to the biblical worldview to try to settle our problems 
problems when we can't do that work for us. And we have to have better, more detailed arguments about why we believe what we believe. You wrote, um, um, practicing self-awareness through a new self-concept that registers and even values to some extent uh, the many facets of our identity can foster humility about our place within enlightenment about a story that is much bigger than we are and help us embrace our radical contingency as creatures of God who exist in and through our relationships. For, for local church pastors listening to this and holding the tension of the division and derision within uh, their community and church, how, how do they begin this approach from a spiritual formation standpoint of self-awareness uh, yes is kind of the you know the gospel narrative but self-awareness more specifically about um our sense of of race uh, a sense of identity and how that relates to others oh that's beautiful i mean in truly from a i i carry into this work a pastoral heart i mean this is the thing that i'm i'm thinking about the thing that i'm concerned about the thing that i'm working towards when i'm um I find myself teaching Sunday school. Um, last night, I was with a local church talking about uh, the the question of moral discernment and how we how we practice it. And this, what you've just asked, is right at the heart of that. How do we begin to to kind of take inventory of what's going on inside of our hearts, the many things that go into our way of thinking about the world, and recognizing that maybe the work of formation is not finished for us, that we still have some changing and growing to do. Um, how do we begin to move forward? Um, for me, one set of language for that is imagining this um, in terms of, you know, so we're Baptists, uh, in terms of baptism. We, we may think of baptism as this kind of once and for all identification with Jesus. That's what we're doing. When we're baptized, we, we, it symbolizes our dying to our self, uh, dying to old ways, dying to who we once were, and raising into a new life of being identified fully with Jesus. But we also know that whether that, that happens early in our lives or later in our lives, that we kind of acknowledge this desire to follow after Jesus, the, the work of conversion work of repentance is ongoing it's a forever kind of call and so while it's important to have a sense that we have died to self that this is significance for significant for us it's not once and for all so much as a death to self by a thousand tiny cuts every aspect of who we are um, if we are to be followers of jesus uh, must be brought into the relationship into the following or must be left behind if it can't serve the kingdom of God. And that doesn't happen just all of a sudden. And I think that we all know that. We recognize that there are certain relationships, certain spaces that we show up in, where it's maybe more challenging for us to hold on to or, or keep at the front of our mind our Christian convictions, or really even to understand how our faith makes a difference in this space. And, and so uh, I think that part of the work of spiritual formation in the church context is the reminder that doing this work is important, uh, that we, we um, call people to reflect on how do we carry our faith into more and more aspects of our lives? How can more and more of who we are be submitted uh, to the, the work of being followers of Jesus? Um, and that is, that is where truly the, the, um, walking this out with other people in a small group, in our classes, in conversations in with other folks in other formats in church, not only, um, you know, in the Sunday sermon where we can for sure, uh, have put in front of us, uh, word pictures and stories that help reveal the complexity of our inner life and call us to change. That, that's significant. It's also significant that we have other ways, other modes of engaging people where we can have reflected to us, um, show, you know, a mirror held up to us to see what's going on 
uh, to see those places that we might not yet have changed, grown, uh, converted uh, fully to, to being a follower of Jesus. Um, our psychology is complex. And if we can recognize that, yes, we have this kind of hoped for self, we want to be fully, we want to belong fully to God. We hope for that. Um, but if we, if we overconnect with that image right now, then we risk not seeing those pieces of ourselves that don't yet reflect uh, the fullness of that image. And so while we hold that as the hope, uh, to know that we're more complex than that also gives us the possibility of seeing where we don't yet fit um, and then changing, growing, continuing to make progress. Our guest is Dr. Jacob Cook. The book is Worldview Theory, Whiteness, and the Future of Evangelical Faith. You can stay connected with Jacob at jacoballencook.com. Jacob, it's great conversing with you. Thank you for reminding us that we are each but one creature within a world that only the living God can truly personally view. Amen. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.